Well, hello, you dazzling daisies. Welcome back to another week of A Little Greener, a podcast all about nature, conservation, and sustainability, all things outdoors. We're talking about it here. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Sarah. I'm joined today by my ever-wonderful friend, co-host, co-creator, extraordinaire, Casey. (laughs) We hold so many titles for our tiny little pod. Hi, everybody. We do it all. We are are the only people involved in this podcast. So uh, it's wonderful to see your face as always. Casey, how are you on this this fine spring day? I don't know if it's fine where you are, but it looks like the sun is shining though. (laughs) At the moment. So today is what we call a winter squall day. So we have been vacillating wildly between like being pleasant the sun is shining right now and then like white out blizzard conditions for like cool. five minutes and then it's over so it's very cold outside um and honestly that's sort of how my week has been going is like oh it's so nice Andrew and I got a offer accepted on a house knock on wood yeah Woo. we're that's excited about that exciting. On the other hand, like our dog got sick. And so it was just, she's fine now. Well, she's, I should say she's recovering now. Her spirits are back. So that that's been definitely better. And, um, and I have slept so, um, but it's almost my weekend and I'm ready. Yay! (laughs) How about you, Sarah? How's your week? It is also my weekend and I'm ready for that too. Well, it's beautiful here, so I won't rub that in too much, but it has been. That's why you moved to Florida. If it wasn't, I'd be sad for you. (laughs) That is why I moved to Florida. It's good. Things are fine. I, I did spring things over my week. I went to a native plant sale, which is apropos for some things that we're going to be talking about today. So that was good. I've gotten a couple of things done around the house. A couple of things broke around the house this week too, including bathrooms. So it's fine. Still have one that works. And it's another busy week ahead as well because I'm running another race next weekend. Nice. So my days off are kind of mixed up again and all of that stuff, but yeah, it should be fun. My basketball team is still dancing as of, (laughs) yeah, as of the time that y'all are listening to this, if it's before final four weekend. So that was good. Yeah. That's, that's something, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that brings me a lot of joy actually. (laughs) So, So yeah, things are good. Things good, good. I'm glad. Um, we're on our 51st episode, Sarah. We're on our 51st episode. I, I kind of feel like we're like starting afresh in some ways. I know, like basically the first one coming out in year two of the pod. So yeah, was, although yeah, oh, I mean, no, really, just it, about yeah. It really w- won't oh, won't Thursday yeah. be the it 31st? Is. Yes, and that's so technically when one we year, yeah. posted it. There we go. Oh, look at that. Oh full circle. Um, so Sarah, my question for you this week is, uh, we're going to be talking about a topic that comes at an intersection at some of my, I don't want to say expertise, but at least experience Mm -hmm. and professional experience. Um, we're going to be talking about how to be a green gardener. So I'd like you to describe your yard to us because you have one now that's yours. (laughs) I do. Well, I did before and that my yard here is not 
as expansive as my yard was before. But I have to say, I'm so excited that we're kicking off year two with this one. You know, I've wanted this one since the beginning because I need you to (laughs) teach me how to be a gardener because this is this is a thing that I am not for sure. So my yard here, I would describe it now as your pretty, pretty standard manicured yard. I have a feeling that the people that lived here before me did some gardening. They left behind some pots and some raised bed dirt uh, and some ornamental plants I've discovered. So it's pretty small. I looked it up. I'm on 0.12 acres. Nice. It's my lot size. So it's not big. I'm in the middle of a neighborhood. I got houses all around me. So there's not a lot. I've got a couple of different types of grass, which I actually want to learn more about. I know that sounds really boring, but I know that you're supposed to like cut them to different heights for (laughs) health of the yard and to minimize your mowing. So I want to learn about that, but I've clearly got two different kinds in the front versus the backyard. And then the people that lived here before me had a couple of ornamental things planted, which I tried using the Seek app to Mm -hmm. identify, and they came up as ornamental plants native to Madagascar. Do you know what they are? I I did not write down the names, (laughs) of course, so I do not remember offhand. I will have to look them up again. But uh, so I have those, but uh, there's also a banana plant cool in the backyard there is um this uh, tree that I talked about before on the podcast which I believe what I think I have is called a golden rain tree I'm googling it now is the so at least it looks very similar to that the the edges of the leaves don't look exactly the same to me but I think that this is the invasive species of tree that is the culprit for all of these bugs that I have all over my This is house. an intense tree. Well, oh, and then I bought I bought myself a plant. So I have my own plant now. What'd you buy? Out front, I bought a beach dune sunflower, I think is okay. what it's called, which is native here to Florida. And so hopefully, I actually haven't planted it yet. So it's sitting in a pot out front and hopefully I will plant it before it dies and hopefully it won't die after I plant it. <laughs> Those are generally good gardening goals to have. There you go. Like I said, I mean, I feel like the people before, like really they did kind of that ornamental gardening. I can tell even just the few months since I've moved in the, the deterioration in the <laughs> manicured look of it. So I do also have a lot of weeds that have popped up and around and, and all that, but. Well, today we're going to be hopefully exploring a little bit of what your yard could look like. If you don't have a yard today, I'm going to say that we're like going to be a little bit yard focused, but there's lots of ways that you can be involved in gardening. So I hope that you'll stick with us. So stick around and we're going to talk about how to be a green gardener. Everybody, we're going to talk about how to be a greener gardener. 
I'm so excited. Say it over and over again. So when I was thinking about how to approach this, because, you know, Sarah's been really excited about it and I want to make sure that I do the vision justice. I realized that a lot of the things I'd been thinking about over the past year have been very like specifically tailored advice on like the best things you can do for birds or butterflies. And, and I think what I realized is that with our listener base being in kind of broadly located mm-hmm. and with the sheer amount of goals that you could have to have a green garden, to be a green gardener, I decided instead of prescribing particular things, I wanted to give advice on how to get started or how to evolve into a greener gardener with goals for your particular location. So this is not a very research heavy episode because it's mostly my opinion, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, but hopefully you get something out of it. Um, gardening is typically seen as a very green activity. So you might be thinking like, what's there to be green about? I'm outside. Plants are good, right? Like plants, carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. That's good. Producing oxygen. We like that. Like getting your hands in the dirt, all good things. Um, so I've mentioned a couple of them, but Sarah, why do people think that gardening is maybe an inherently exclusively green thing to do? I mean, I don't know if this is the the first thing that comes to mind for most people, but yeah, you said it right off the bat. For me, the biggest thing, we talk nonstop about your outdoor time here Mm -hmm. and how that outdoor time facilitates connection to nature. I can think of no better way really to get connected to the nature around you than getting out there and experiencing it and helping it to grow. And I mean, the... So here's the thing, Casey, like I, I don't know that I like gardening that much. Like I don't get, you know, I have never been one, like, like I said, I've got weeds growing out all around there and I'm not like, I should go, you know, I can't wait to go out there and and pull the weeds. I I don't like that, but the idea, no one likes that, (laughs) but the idea of being able to help something grow, I guess, is, is really appealing to me. So anyway, all that to say, I think that just the, the fact that it gets us outside and gets us to be a good gardener, I think you have to at least get more familiar with the nature around you. And I think that it helps us to do both of those things right off the bat. I'm also excited. What I, what I want to do in my own yard is to switch from these sort of more ornamental plants to native plants. And so I think when you're gardening for native wildlife, there's a big benefit there. So you can provide sources of food and shelter for your local wildlife and kind of enhance your local environment. So those are the things that I think of. Sure. And I will say that I'm in the industry now. So (laughs) most especially younger people, like older people might identify themselves as gardeners. Even younger people who garden do not generally ascribe that uh, adjective to themselves. They actually will consider themselves plant lovers. Um, They might be growers. They grow food, um, but they don't typically consider themselves gardeners. And I think maybe like if you are even younger than us, like conceptually, you might be thinking of like an old lady in England with her straw Sun hat. hat yes. 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 And she's tending to the, the crocuses or whatever, you know? So there's so many 
things that can be encompassed within gardening that can be like general lawn care all the way to, yeah, creating native ecosystems. I particularly, um, have been doing a lot of food gardening in the last couple of years and, and that's a green activity. Yes, that's um, true. That's a way to reduce your carbon footprint, to reduce the impacts of industrial agriculture by growing things in your own backyard, being more connected to the land. It can kind of make you more of a scientist, which is really nice too. So those things are all very good, but there are some parts of gardening that are maybe not so green, depending on how you approach it. So can you think of some ways that gardening might have a negative impact on the environment? Sure. So we talked about planting native plants, Mm -hmm. the Something else that can happen, though, is folks might introduce invasive species through gardening. And we've talked about how not all non-native species, plants or animals, are by definition invasive species. So Mm -hmm. keep that in mind. But we have introduced invasive species through gardening and wanting to have these beautiful plants from other places brought to where we're living now and they have become invasive species. So that certainly can happen and is something that we have to be careful of. We've talked about this before too. You can go to the store and buy invasive plants right now. So something we have to watch out for. Also just to say to, to tack on here that when we are planting plants that are not native, those can have a bigger drain on our resources as well. So they may need things like more frequent watering than a native plant might, for example. They might. It is not an exclusive truth Mm -hmm. that native plants need less water. That's kind of a myth that's out there. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a moment, but I just wanted to put that out there. Also, if you're like, man, Sarah really hates ornamental plants. I don't have an exclusively bad opinion of ornamental plants. And we'll talk about how to balance those things too. But what else, Sarah, what else do we have out there? Sure. No. And if I'm coming across as sounding like I hate them, that's certainly not where I'm coming from. Those aren't the goals that I have, but yeah, I want, I want to be clear about that again, not native doesn't mean bad. It just means what it is. They also might not support your local wildlife as well. Not that they won't support them at all, but they might not support your local wildlife as well as a native species are. Your native species are just better adapted to your native plants. That's all. what what am I talking about? Other, other things, things that may be Bad harmful um, is, you know, potentially if you're using things like herbicides or pesticides as well, that can have an impact on your environment too. Yes. Yeah. Those chemicals that we use can be super harmful. If you're thinking about all those commercials that are on TV right now that are like, Scott's long care, we're going to get rid of crabgrass. They're like, you know, <laughs> they're not just getting rid of crabgrass. They're, they're getting rid of other things um, too. Uh, there's also a lot of single use plastics in the gardens industry. Think about when you go like Sarah, the pot that you got your beach sunflower from the native plant sale is it something that is like a compostable material or is it plastic pot? Oh no, it's plastic. It's a flimsy and plastic. Absolutely. Plastics are ubiquitous. And basically I was reading a report by the Missouri Botanical Garden who did a really excellent job researching how much they think the garden center industry 
produces as far as plastic pots. And prior to the seventies, they used to just sell things bare root or in burlap plastic pots improve survivability of the plants from the time they're in the grower to when they get to the customer, they are more attractive overall. They're hardier, but, uh, they're almost exclusively non-recyclable. At least there's no good (laughs) recycling industry revolving around them. They are flimsy. Like you pointed out, Sarah. So they're typically not reused in a lot of things. We do reuse some of our, our larger plastic pots, but like the little ones, there's like sometimes you, you touch them and they tear. So, um, so there's a lot of plastic waste. Also something you hate is mowing your lawn (laughs) and that releases carbon dioxide, which we talked about, I think in our slackers guides to sustainability episode. I will say though, that for me, when I think about gardening, part of what I want to do is rip up my lawn, get up your lawn in order sure. to in order to garden so that could be a potential side benefit if you end up with less lawn to mow absolutely okay so thinking about these things in context obviously we have some good things about it and i'm obviously a proponent of gardening i also think that again something that brings you joy it doesn't have to be exclusively good for the environment entirely but there are ways to be way better for the environment than we are currently. So Sarah, the first thing that I want to recommend to newer existing gardeners is to evaluate your goals. So one of the things that I have been experiencing now is having people come up to me and ask me how they can basically make their garden do everything. How do I make my garden a low maintenance butterfly meadow bee bird habitat that will survive my dog and cat peeing on it. It's also in full shade, no sun with a black walnut that releases toxins into the ground in it. And so how do I do all of those things? And the answer is you probably can't do all of the things that if, if all those things are on your list, if that's what your existing situation is, and then you have all of these goals and like, I never want to weed like those things probably are not going to exist in the way that you're envisioning them in your brain in some sort of sustainable way. So I would recommend thinking about what your goals are and starting there. And there's kind of two different ways I want you to think about it. One would be environmental goals. Like what do you want to get out of it to be greener? And then practical goals. What sort of maintenance do you want to do on it? What do you, you know, what purposes does this yard, because it's part of your home, need to serve? So Sarah, I was wondering, I asked you yesterday, if you could think of some goals that you might have for your garden moving forward. And I think that you have answered a couple of them. Yeah. And, and I mean, I do have a few, I get, I am going to turn into one of those people that just starts to list <laughs> everything. Sure. But I think I have different goals for different spaces. So yeah. I think about out in front of my house, I do, you know, I want it to look nice. You know, I have a, a little blue house. I bought this beach dune sunflower that produces yellow flowers. And I'm like, oh, I think that, you know, I think that'll look nice. I think that'll enhance the curb appeal of the house. And I do, I want it to look pretty. So that's part of the goal. I think that I do want to attract wildlife in some way. I don't really care what it is. 
I don't care if it's pollinators, you know, but I don't discriminatory. Really care. I just wanted to be, I do want it to be friendly to my local wildlife dream goals. This is not something that's going to happen right away. I would like to reduce my yard space. I feel like if I had the money, man, I would, I would hire a landscape designer to help me, you know, rip up pieces of the lawn and kind of create managed spaces of garden. So that's out front in my backyard. I think that I would like to have a little food space. You know, I, I just, just basic, a few simple things that I would actually eat. I would like to grow back there as well. I do want to get rid of any invasives in my yard. If I determine that this tree is an invasive species, I would like to get it out uh, eventually. And it, for, for me, my own personal goal is, is to have native plants in my yard. So I don't know. There are a lot of different things, but like I said, it's kind of different things for different spaces. And I think that's a good way to approach it is, um, different parts of your yard also have different conditions. So you also have to think about that, but yes, your goals for your front yard are probably different than your goals for your backyard. Maybe not, but probably. Um, and I think that when, uh, we discount beauty as a reason to invest time in your home and garden, I think that that's a detriment to honestly, the environmental movement. When, when we decide that the only thing that's important is creating something that is exclusively native for pollinators and birds and bees, we might forget that people also live in that home. And ultimately they have to like what they're going to have or it's not going to be sustainable. Eventually they're going to get sick of it and rip it out or their neighbors are going to get mad and they're going to uh, complain to the HOA or complain to the city that you're not mowing your grass, but maybe, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a meadow. So yeah, environmental things you've, you've touched on a couple creating pollinator garden, supporting wildlife of some sort. Maybe some people try and recreate a meadow like straight up. Yeah. I will say also that a lot of people will, Pennsylvania is mostly forests. So, and so was Indiana prior to humans coming by. So I'm always like, was this a meadow beforehand or was it woods? Um, not that it's bad to have a meadow obviously, but, um, but it, I, I just, am always curious about the kind of thinking about those things. Um, just, ridding, sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, I will say just as an aside, people always used to joke with my house back up North when I wouldn't yes. know that backyard because that was a large backyard they would joke that it was my meadow and the part that is that is a goal I will never have honestly <laughs> like I did I, I hated mowing the lawn so much mm-hmm. that I would go so long in between but honestly that thing when that grass got that long it gave me so much like I couldn't sit out and enjoy it I just couldn't sure. stand it so I yeah that's a, a really good point is that you do have to take into account what your own personal preference and enjoyment is Right. And like when we recreate a meadow and you're trying to attract, uh, I'll talk more about this later, but like when you're trying to attract everything that includes snakes and mice and things Mm -hmm. that sometimes people don't actually want to be around. And I'm not saying that those things don't deserve to be there. I'm just saying that like your envisioning of all these beautiful bumblebees and butterflies is not the only thing that lives in meadows. Um, some people are trying to produce their own food gardens. We're not going to talk as much about the specifics of that. Um, but again, that's going to be involved in this reducing outdoor water use is a really important thing for a lot of people who live out West. They're looking for something that's maybe more 
xeric conditions where it's more desert adapted. Practical goals you've talked about. I mean, you've talked about trying to have something that's low maintenance just by virtue of saying, I don't like to weed. Like I don't like to mow and I don't like to weed. Um, so you're looking for something you don't have to spend a lot of time in. My dad always jokes that people, because he's a, he's a landscape designer, um, will go to him and say, I really want an English garden. And he's like, English gardeners spend double the amount of time in their garden as American gardeners. So if you want to do that, it takes much more investment. I can't just plant it and then it'd be fine. It's a lot of maintenance work to keep it blooming and look that beautiful. Um, some people wanted to add value to their home. Like the, that curb appeal mm-hmm. factor is a big deal. Um, if you rip out your front lawn, there's a chance that people don't think your home is as valuable. That's a weird American thing that we have. So it's something to keep in consideration if you decide that you're going to rip it out. Maybe you have kids and you want a space for them to play and lawns can be great for playing soccer in. (laughs) So you still need some space for them to play, or maybe you need a place for your dog to play and it needs to keep up with their wear and tear. Maybe you want it to keep interest in all seasons, even in the winter. So these are things that are not necessarily exclusively environmental goals, but you have to keep in mind because you have to live alongside whatever you're creating and you're going to have to maintain whatever you're creating. And it's, attempting to try and recreate the native ecosystem, like the meadow situation. I see this a lot. Like I remember someone on Instagram who's part of like a green organization nearby, like took a picture of somebody's literally one foot wide strip that was along the side of the road that they hadn't mowed. And maybe they did plant some stuff there, but they were like, what a wonderful meadow. And like, I don't know that I can say that that's a meadow because a meadow involves a lot of different factors, which includes things that don't exist here anymore. So for example, in Pennsylvania, when we had meadows, we had a lot more megafauna running around. We used to have elk out here that used to eat the woody stalks and keep the meadow in check from going into a forest. So when you bought your house, somebody like bulldozed all the forest in the meadows. They compacted all the soil down. They probably put weed killer everywhere and tried to put sod down so that there's grass growing there. And then we paved everything around it. So it is hotter than the local environment. And it doesn't include all of the animals that make those ecosystems run. So I think that it's important, unless you live on a large acreage, you're not necessarily going to have that straight native ecosystem in your backyard. You can do some compromises to try and have some of those same functions, but like we just, we can't, bring elk back to like your backyard <laughs> to, to help that meadow regenerate in the way it's supposed to. You're probably not setting prescribed fires in your backyard for these ecosystems. So we have to balance that with the practicality that you live probably in a neighborhood. And that is my tiny rant about meadows. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we've evaluated our goals. Sarah, you have identified some of your goals. The next thing is to do your research and first do your research of your own space. So Sarah, do you know, like, do you get a lot of sun in your yard? Is it kind of shady? Does that, does that golden rain tree, uh, block out a lot of the, the sun there? Not too much actually, but it is a little tough just to the orientation of my house right now. So it's my house faces west okay I think so my backyard is getting a lot of light in the morning and then Mm -hmm. the front yard is getting direct sunlight in 
the afternoon. Okay. So it depends yep. on the day, you know, and, and that is the thing that I do wonder if I, it depends on the time of day. And that is the thing I do wonder sometimes as a non-gardener and somebody that doesn't know, you know, you read about plants that need full sun. I'm like, well, right. when, when do you need full sun? <laughs> because you're only going to get sure. some part of the day. I don't have uh, there's no real room to, to plant much on the sort of South side, or there's not a, any ready-made beds, I should say on the South side of okay. my house. Like the North side of my house actually has a little border that I could plant some things in and she's good. And the front and the back do as well, but the, the South side. I think the South side's well, my dad's not here. The technically like the hottest side that gets yes. the most amount of sun. It seems like it, it would be. Yes. Yeah. So um when they say full sun, typically they mean like six to eight hours right. of sunlight a day. So typically if something's full sun and you only get morning sun, I can't say for Florida in Pennsylvania, typically that's not enough for it to perform at peak performance. Right. And that was my sort of understanding of it as well. So I'm putting my full sun plant on the West on side of my, of my house is the plan, but yes. So anyway, that's just one of those things, but, um, but yeah, it is a, an overall pretty sunny. The, the tree is on the South side of my house okay. and does not seem to cast too much of a shadow on any of the, the planting spots. Well, that's good. Do, have you seen any wildlife in your yard? You know, I, just again, because of the orientation and backing up to all of, of the other houses, I don't see as much or hear as much as I did back up north. But I do, I've mentioned it before, mockingbirds everywhere. I see them. I cool. hear them all the time. Heard red-winged blackbirds for the first time today, actually, um, out my front door. I had sandhill cranes fly over the other day. So I'm starting to see a, a few more bird species, notice a few more. And then of course, Central Florida, we have anoles all over the place. So yes. I see mostly brown anoles, which are an invasive species. And I'm sure there are other types of lizards too that I'm just, just not identifying. So not too much. My yard is also fenced in the backyard. Sure. So that sort of limits what's getting in and out. Yeah. And lots of insects, of course, too. That's what I see most hand. Again, what I think is coming from this golden rain tree is a whole host of insects that are all, well, a specific type of insect um, that's all over the place. Yeah. You might have to think about getting a different tree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you have a fenced in yard, obviously a lot of wildlife can't pass through right. that. I also think it's interesting. Some of the birds you just listed are wetlands birds. So if you're in Florida trying to make your yard a meadow, you should be trying to make it a swamp. <laughs> and that doesn't sound as appealing, does it? Um, so, uh, if you want to go super fancy, you could also look at the pH of your soil. You can test for heavy metals, especially if you're food gardening, that's sometimes something that people will look at because just cause it's grown in your backyard, doesn't mean that it has exclusively healthy conditions, especially if you live near like an industrial area. Do you know what growing zone you're in? I do actually, or yeah. I, I, hopefully we're talking about the same thing, I think, but it's funny when I read this on here on your sort of episode outline, 
I was like, I feel like I'm a, a nine. Was that a thing? Cause I looked it up yeah. a long time ago mm-hmm. when I previously lived in Florida and was thinking about gardening that I never actually did. And so I pulled up the map and I nine B. Nine B. So somehow that nine stuck in my brain for all those years. That's so funny. <laughs> so if you don't know, basically, I think it's the USDA came up if you're in the US with planting zones, which basically is based off of the lowest temperature that you're probably going to be experiencing over the course of the year. And that determines what kind of plants are going to grow in your area. So Sarah is a zone nine. Typically, if you're way up north, you have a lower number than if you're down south. I think like the hottest it gets to is like a a 10. So you're pretty close to there might be an 11. I think, yeah, there is an 11. It looks like at the Southern tip of Florida. Yeah. And I am in six B and in case you were like, huh, climate change is happening. Yes. Those growing zones have shifted over time and probably will continue to shift because it's just telling you how cold is it going to get? And that helps determine which plants are there. So why is your growing zone important? Not only is it like what plants are well suited for that area, but actually even how long they'll live. So for example, Sarah, there are probably plants in your yard because you're saying that they're native to Madagascar that we sell as house plants in Pennsylvania that people do not take outside unless it's summertime because they will die. (laughs) There are also plants that people will come into our store and be like, I want a perennial this, which is only so do you know what a perennial is, Sarah? Perennials are the place. ones that come back year after year, right? Yes. So I like those. <laughs> yes. Perennials come back year after year. The pros are more, you know, longevity for you, um, less kind of installation every year. Yes. They tend to have a shorter bloom time than the annuals and the annuals, I would say generally tend to be less native. They're not exclusively bad, but they have a longer bloom time. That's why people really like them. You can change them up every year, which is why people like them, but they cost more kind of over time. Uh, They're cheaper, but that you have to replace them every year, basically. But people will come in saying like, I want a perennial, I don't know, poinsettia or something like that. That's a totally made up one because we don't grow those outside. (laughs) But when I went to Hawaii, they had poinsettias there all year round. And you'll be like, oh, they're not perennial. (laughs) poinsettias in this this case. And they'll be like, I looked it up on the internet. There absolutely is. And that's because they're looking at some other growing zone mm-hmm. where that it doesn't get cold enough to kill that plant over the winter time. And in Pennsylvania, it certainly does get cold <laughs> enough to kill lots of things over the winter time. So that's why your USDA zone is important. And that's going to help you with your research. So the next thing is then to figure out what native plants are native to your area. That was redundant. Sarah, <laughs> Why aren't, what native benefits do native, native, native plants give us? <laughs> well, those native plants, I, I mean, we talked about it a little bit earlier as just being, I mean, you, you think of what native means and you think of these plants that have been in this area. So therefore the insects and the other animals and everything else are well-suited for that type of plant. That plant is going to be well-suited for the soil conditions and the environmental conditions that you have. So yeah, those would be the biggest benefits, I think. Yeah. Especially the wildlife one. I am like, I mean, you basically can't convince anybody out of that one. The plants in the area evolved alongside the animals in the area and therefore are their natural food sources. That's important. I I shouldn't, well, I shouldn't say this because I didn't 
look it up in time for this episode, but I'm having a brain tingle about a study regarding insects. And I think it had both the size and the diversity of insects in relation to the abundance of native plants and just showing how beneficial that truly was but I don't have the info on it. But so the, I know the exactly this study that you're talking about. <laughs> so I Googled it because oh, they were looking at, well, at least one of the studies they were talking about. Basically, if you look at an oak tree, oak trees support like over 500 species of butterfly and moth caterpillars versus like a ginkgo tree, which are native to Asia that we use more ornamentally. And we talked about in our native bird episode is that that directly translates into baby birds surviving in the springtime. So even if you're like gross bugs, but cool, birds are cool. Like they need to eat the bugs and the bugs need to be on something that they can eat or at least recognize as food because we'll also talk about that in a moment. So I, yeah, I just wanted to say that just so that you know, we're not just saying this because it fits with our whatever that because it sounds good like there are actually documented studies that show the benefit of these names a hundred percent there's lots of them out there i had a long week so i didn't look them up and i should have but there are some truisms that people will kind of associate with native plants that aren't always true so that thing we talked about earlier Mm -hmm. that they they need less water you don't really have to water them because they're used to the rainfall amounts that we get there the environmental conditions of your yard are not the same as what they would have in their native ecosystem. You're right though, that some non-natives need more watering and need a lot more attention and care. They're, they're what I like to think of as like wishfully hardy species Mm -hmm. in our area. So you'll be like, yeah, that's right on the edge. Cause normally it'll say something like, oh, it's hardy from zone five to nine or something like that. And you're like, I'm in zone five. (laughs) they do they test them they really do like they test them in test gardens for several years to see if they survive and they're they're hardy in those areas i was just in a webinar where someone was like what about zone four for a brand new plant that they were introducing and they were like they are not tested in zone four and so they're very clear like that we tested them in these but you know if you get one of those years that is real cold right then that to me is slightly wishfully hardy species. Um, I think about crepe myrtles out here. They're so beautiful in the South and up here it is, they, they struggle with us sometimes. So a words on some non-native plants. So non-native plants are not exclusively bad. I had inherently bad and more like exclusively bad. Um, many pollinators will go to non-native plants. Mm-hmm. Uh, butterfly bushes are a non-native plant. They're actually an invasive plant. Butterflies still love them. They just can't have their babies on them. So you'll still see butterflies flock to and and hummingbirds and bird species feed on non-native plants. The changing climate is actually preventing some of our normal native plants from thriving this area. So my sister also actually went to a horticulture school for, for a brief period of time. And she was talking about how a lot of our evergreens around here are not holding up to the changing climate and that actually some species from other areas might be good stand-ins for the ecosystem roles that evergreens play in this area that the native species aren't doing. There's also certain species that have been wiped out by disease that there are, have been hybridized with other non-native species and that's the only way that they're going to exist. Um, so that's important. Also like 
like I said, beauty is part of it. I had a lady come in the other day who was like, I'm buying snapdragons because my mom used to plant them. So they're mm-hmm. very sentimental for me. I think that's a good reason to plant a plant. 100%. Like, right. Like I think they remind me of my mom is an absolutely fine reason <laughs> to plant a plant. I think that you want to think like, if you're like, oh, my mom always planted Japanese barberries, which are extremely invasive or Calgary pears or whatever, like you might want to think about that, but just because it's not a straight native species doesn't mean that it doesn't have some sort of value outside of the environment. So we want to balance those goals of like making sure it brings you joy. I'm sure snapdragons make her want to spend more time sitting outside looking yeah. at her lovely snapdragons than if you were like, well, uh, and honestly, I didn't do research. Maybe snapdragons are native to around here, but, <laughs> but, but honestly, like, you know, like if you're like, well, no, 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 you have to do this specific right. type of plant. That's like not necessarily going to spark on everybody. The next thing I want to talk about is a very complicated subject that is a bit controversial and maybe it's going to make me um, lose my environmental card for some people. <laughs> Sarah, do you know what a cultivar is? Not really. Okay. okay. I mean, so I, like I'm familiar with the word, but this is an area of plant world that it, it messes with my brain a little bit. Are cultivars man-made things like are these ways that we have adjusted certain species of plants is that accurate so a species of plant might have several different cultivars that have been sort of bred by people is that true i i yes for the majority of it, yes, they are man-made. I will say, again, I was in a, a webinar <laughs> where they were introducing new cultivars and they were talking about how they found this cultivar of an arborvitae growing out of an existing arborvitae. And so it was just a genetic mutation that came out of this plant, but they were like, ooh, this is different. <laughs> and like chopped off the branches and stuck them in the ground and started propagating them. It might not have, yeah. Well, trees what? do that too. Yeah. <laughs> trees do that. You can, you can, we have willows in the background that are like children and grandchildren of yes. willows that used to be here. Yeah. So, um, but generally man-made propagated. So you have a native plant. It exists in nature. If you think about purple cone flowers, for example, they're really common, especially across like basically the entire east and southeast of the United States. That is one species. I'm thinking of Echinacea purpia right now. And throughout its zones, it had it's, it's locally adapted to different growing conditions. A, a plant that was maybe like born is wrong, grown, I don't know, <laughs> germinated in upstate New York may not be well adapted to coming down into Florida, but they're all the same species. They're kind of locally ecotyped. And so it's very hard to like on a grand scale, generally take the way that nurseries work (laughs) on a regional level to take plants that are specifically from like Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, where I live right now and make sure it's locally adapted right there, as well as other parts of their market. So there's always going to be nuances, even within the native plants, straight natives, but then you introduce cultivars and everything gets crazy. The other thing about like natives is when you're trying to make them on a large scale, like a lot of times they will, like lots of plants are clones of each other. So if you're cloning a bunch of them, it can reduce genetic diversity. Anyway, mass production of anything in plant world has its own issues in there. Sure. 
And I will say one of the great ways to get native plants is to just trade seeds with your neighbors. So there are seed exchanges around. That's one of the ways you can have locally grown native plants that are not part of an industrial scale is to look for things like that. But we're in cultivar land now. Sorry, I'm getting into the the weeds. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. Um, So think of cultivars like breeds of dogs. So if you're somebody who lives in an apartment, you might want a chihuahua. If you're somebody who lives in a area with livestock, you might want a great Pyrenees. So there's different reasons to want these dogs. Some of them you're like, why did you breed Shih Tzus so they can't breathe through their noses, right? Like they're bad parts of, of particular breeding. Um, and why are you breeding German Shepherds so that they have hip dysplasia? Things like that, I think are a good comparison to what we're going for. Are you, Sarah's thinking about it. She's I am thinking about agrees. it. No, I, well, I'm just, I no, I'm still just confused because when you talk about different breeds of dogs there are lots of differences a lot of the time Mm -hmm. like all of those dog breeds that you mentioned it's very clear that they are different when I think of a plant cultivar oh man they're they're not are they all going to be like noticeably different or what types of things are these different can you give me an example of a plant like different cultivars of a plant that might be good in different scenarios, if that makes sense. Yes. So uh, the first thing that pops into mind is hydrangeas. Um, hydrangea paniculata has like the most amount of cultivars that I, everyone's like, how many types of hydrangea do you have? We have like 60 types of hydrangeas and there are like three different species (laughs) that we carry and so many different types, but okay. So the reasons that people will create these cultivars can be positive things actually possibly for the environment. So for example, my mom doesn't like that uh, purple cone flowers flop over and get powdery mildew on them. So they have bred these cultivars of the purple cone flower that are resistant to powdery mildew. Got it. So that's good. We like that. They'll breed them so that, oh, we're going to keep selecting for the genes that make them bloom longer and longer. Is that bad for butterflies? It depends. Is it impacting the nectar quality? Maybe we're not testing for the nectar quality when we're trying to see how long the flower blooms. Ooh, we turned this purple cone flower yellow and orange and pink and all these different colors that are really beautiful. But when the bird looks at it or the bee who has a different type of vision than Mm -hmm. us, do they still recognize it as food? Sometimes we'll make them little, sometimes we'll make them big. Chihuahua versus Great Pyrenees. Um, So this is good because you can take some of these plants that you would not have been able to grow in certain conditions before. Maybe they're more drought tolerant. Maybe they can fit in a more compact space. Great. Sometimes you're like, why did you turn all the leaves purple? Now the bugs don't realize that that's their food. And that's just the kind of things that you have to think about. If they change the size, the bloom time, the disease resistance, it's probably not a big deal. If they change the shape of the flower, if they change the color of the flower or foliage, that's something that definitely disrupts an insect or a bird's relationship to them. Unfortunately, there's so many (laughs) and more come out every year that uh, there's not rigorous enough testing on every single cultivar of every single plant to tell you which ones 
are really good and which ones are detrimental. So a lot of environmentalists say don't do cultivars because they think that altering that plant changes its relationship with the the wildlife that it's around. And there's also some issues with if it's not a sterile plant and it spreads, does it end up cross-pollinating mm-hmm. and interfering with the genetics of the native population? That's a, a totally valid concern. I struggle with this a lot because I do think there's a lot of good things about cultivars. And I have, if somebody wants something that's typically, if you tell somebody that they like this plant and you say, oh, but it's a cultivar. It doesn't mean that they're going to go for the straight native. They might, if that's their priority, if that's in their list of gardening goals is I want exclusively native plants. Great. They're going to go for it. But a lot of people are looking for something that looks nice Mm -hmm. or that they don't have to treat with pesticides or insecticide or, uh, with herbicides. Yeah or fungicides, which also, if you're using those, that's not great for the environment either. You know, all of this is to say that thinking about how some environmentalists might feel about cultivars is that there is a lot of gray area in the world, in the field of conservation, you know, so there may be things that we don't know yet and things that we are going to learn more about. And that's okay. We're just trying to do the best we can. And I think Casey, your overall point in this, in thinking about what your goals are still applies here. So you can think now knowing what we've talked about with cultivars and doing your own research, you know, how you want to approach that in your own garden. Absolutely. And that's why I think it's a little bit more of a personal preference than Mm -hmm. it is something that we can prescribe across the board. I don't think that we can make non-native plants illegal things I have seen people say we should do. I just don't know that that's the solution. (laughs) I think that would be broadly unpopular too, because there's lots of trees that people love that are still sucking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere Mm -hmm. and birds are still using to build their nests in that are not straight native trees. And just because especially mature trees, when it dies, maybe we need to replace it with something else. If it's a mature tree, we're going to spend a lot of time trying to grow up a new tree to replace its ecosystem value. So there's a lot of nuance to that. So yeah, absolutely. Write down what your goals are and see where you want to make those trade-offs and where you don't. So thanks for summarizing my cultivar ramble. So number three is to adhere to some basic green tenants when you are gardening. So a really easy one is to avoid pesticides either all together or use them sparingly. So pesticides, indiscriminate killers, they're right. going to kill whatever sort of insects that you use them on. Only use them as directed. A lot of these, these pesticides, if you use them as directed, are going to minimize harm on the species that you don't want to do because they'll tell you like, oh, don't spray in the morning when the bees are up on the flowers that the bees go to you're not trying to kill the bees. An argument my dad will make, and I don't necessarily completely disagree, is some systemic pesticides will save trees from insects that have bored into their trunk. Mm -hmm. And again, that mature tree serves a lot of functions. If some animals, if that pesticide then gets into the flowers, it can impact some of those insects on there. But 
we're now trading off the life of a tree or the life of some of the insects. And if it's in systemic, it's not like airborne. So it's really like, you know, there's still some gray area that you have to think about what you want to do. Also, if like you're getting devastated by whatever type of insect, sometimes like that's, that is what it is. Yeah. That's go ahead. No, I, I just, I'm agreeing with you. I, I think the advice about using it as directed is a good one to use, use it sparingly and use it as directed. If you are going to have to do it. I keep talking about these bugs that are all over my house. I wish I could remember what they were called, but they don't, harm anything. They don't destroy the house. They don't really just, they don't destroy plants. So they're not doing any damage, but the sort of emotional damage that it does to me for seeing them, like I cannot, like they swarm, like they are all over uh, the side of my house. My mom was like, Sarah, maybe you should just get some pesticides. And I, but I haven't done it because for me, the trade-off was, was not because I would have had to use it so widespread around sure. my house. I was like, I, I don't want to do this. I'm going to wait. I'm thinking with the change of seasons, they might go away. But if you have a targeted problem that you target this pesticide as directed in your problem area, like don't beat yourself up. <laughs> right. You're minimizing harm basically. And, and Sometimes people steer away from the chemical and they'll put in something that's also bad. I'm thinking specifically of sticky traps. Mm. Terrible. (laughs) If you're going to put sticky traps around your tree, it will catch birds. Yeah. And they're also very indiscriminate. Right. So like, even though you're like, well, it's not airborne, it's still having some sort of impact. You're trying to kill things. So if you can be more specific with what you're trying to Mm -hmm. kill, you're going to reduce harm to things that maybe you want to stick around. Don't use invasive species. (laughs) Yes. Again, difference between non-native and invasive. Right. And so Sarah, what is the problem with invasive specifically? So, I mean, they're going to take over. So we talk about Mm -hmm. invasives as being something that is going to cause harm to the environment in some way. So invasive species are going to take over the environment and they're not going to provide those beneficial ecosystem service really. I mean, I know you're right. I know I see your face. There's still plants. (laughs) There's still plants, but well, I'm thinking of the butterfly bush. The butterfly bush provides nectar to native butterflies. Is it an invasive species? It is technically an invasive species up here. There are people who want us to stop carrying butterfly bushes and I am sympathetic to the argument, but I'm not hundred percent convinced yet because they're not as bad of an invasive species as some of the other ones that we've talked about. And they do provide a lot of like resources for the insects, the, just the babies don't grow on them at all. And so I'm sure there'll be a day where my indoctrination into the garden center industry, um, fades and I've decided I hate butterfly bushes, but that's just something like it's out there. What is their damage? Like what is the justification then for them being in? Sure. So invasive species, I think one of the clarifications I wanted to make is they will take over, but they don't necessarily take over your yard. They might get their berries eaten by birds and who are going to fly 10 miles away, poop it out. And all of a sudden there's a barberry thicket along the side of the road, or maybe it's not managed as well as a yard and it's going to take over that area. And now deer can't get through that area. Small animals can't with butterfly bushes. Basically they are, the argument is at least that when they put into an area, 
they displace natives and that would be their ecosystem harm is displacing native species. So this is something that is clearly not as straightforward to me in the plant world as it is in the animal world. Yeah. So just, sorry, this is not a scientific source, but when you Google butterfly bush invasive, the first thing that comes in is basically they spread rapidly along riverbanks and reforested areas, and they prevent development of species like willows from coming in there. So beneficial to insects, but remember invasive species competing with other members of their own class as well. So yeah, lots of different things <laughs> to, to go around the, there's a lot of research to do. Don't beat yourself up. There's a lot, a lot of plants out there. So take a look at state lists. Audubon society has a really good list. that's like top 10 bad plants for birds that you'll find in your backyard. And they will tell you which ones to rip out. Another piece of advice for just basic green tenant is to always think of your garden as a, try and make it a closed system, but recognize that anything you bring in can also leak out. So nutrients, for example, if you add fertilizers, if you add too much fertilizers, those nutrients will leak out into the groundwater and end up causing issues in outside of your backyard. So you can start natural by just adding compost or leaf litter from your trees around you. Sir, do you guys have leaf litter down there? That might be a dumb question. Yeah. Yeah. Do the the trees drop their leaves? They do. Okay. Just like over time, like in basically like the pines do here. I feel like I usually notice it at a different, so like I won't notice it during fall so much, but I'll notice it at other times of the year. We'll have leaves on the ground all over the place. I've got palm. I don't think I mentioned that I have a palm tree out front as well. And I get palm fronds that fall. Yeah. That's a silly question. That's plants do that normally. I'm just thinking of like (laughs) the buildup over time, I guess. It's Um, not. Yeah. I mean, well, it's not as dumb. It's like, I mean, we don't get the, you know, there's not the fall foliage that you see in other parts of the world, but so yeah, those palm fronds could be used as additional nutrients for your compost in your backyard. Sarah, Mm -hmm. that's something that you're doing. You can also add mulch in there, or you can add cover crops. If you live in my part of the country, then there's certain plants that will grow in the wintertime when we're not growing other things. And that'll keep the topsoil in and add nutrients. Evaluate your needs for additional systems like irrigation. I don't think most yards need irrigation. Um, if you're watering your grass when there's a drought, you shouldn't be watering your grass at all. (laughs) That should be the first thing to go brown. And in my part of the country, we get more rainfall than a lot of these plants need. So if you can't water them with your hose every once in a while, like, I don't know, it, it shouldn't be that much work. I'm sure there are situations where that's not the, the case, but you know, you don't want to waste water out there either. You could instead use a rain barrel and collect that and then use that to water your lawn as well. Also shopping small, independent, and local are ways that you can reduce your footprint as well. They're going to have plants that are better adapted to your area. They're going to be higher quality plants. Um, just because you can get it for $10 at Home Depot doesn't mean that it is better than the one that you're going to get yes. for more money. Garden centers. Support are, your local garden center. Yeah. <laughs> They're not trying to rip you off. They're just trying to cover their costs and the costs that it actually takes. When you see a tree there, it took several years of somebody taking care of it. Like that's why it's a couple hundred dollars. And a lot of those places will give you a guarantee on your tree for a certain amount of time. So 
that'll help as well. And it doesn't just have to be businesses. Again, there are seed exchange programs with native seeds that are local to your specific area that you can trade with other people. There's gardening groups on Facebook that people are always giving away plants and stuff there. The plant sale that I went to the other weekend was a fundraiser for a a local native plant society too. So you can find those around. Yeah. There's um, wildflower societies. There's native plant societies. You can order seeds from them. If you want to seeds are a really good way. If you don't have a lot of money to spend on plants to get a lot of bang for your buck, it takes a lot more work, but if and that's more in your, patience. <laughs> so much patience, if, if part of your gardening goals are like natives, 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 that's a really good way to do it. And like, I don't want to spend a lot of money. If part of your gardening goals is I don't want to, I want to put it in and be done with it. Then seeds are probably <laughs> not for you. And then my last tenant on here, I guess, is to look for greener options of things that maybe you already use. So rain barrel, maybe you can find a recycled rain barrel if you need one. To reduce packaging, you're going to look for things that are in organic compostable pots. They make pots that are made out of compressed newspaper. If you buy bigger bags of soil, that means there's less packaging per square foot. So if you can manage to carry those bigger bags of soil, (laughs) or if you can get it in bulk, there's, I mean, downsides to bulk too, but bulk has no plastic. So that's also a helpful if you need a larger amount. Sarah, do you know about the environmental impacts of peat? Sort of just sparingly. I've seen a lot of folks posting about it recently just to avoid using it. Yeah. Peat is made naturally from bogs in in bogs. I should say in wetland areas, it takes a long time to build up and we harvest it for growing materials because it's really good at holding on to moisture, but it's not super sustainable to harvest. It is really bad when they drain wetlands and burn it, but that's kind of for more of plantations in the gardening industry. It's something that's harvested um, generally from like Canada. But there are peatless mixes or reduced peat mixes. One of the companies that we've worked with is Pit Moss, not peat moss, Pit Moss. And they're from Pittsburgh. That's why they have that name. And they actually use recycled materials, like recycled newspaper from their local recycling plant as part of their soil mix um, for growing. And it actually holds onto water even better than the peat does. And so that's what we use for our growing mix was much more pit moss based rather than peat moss based and reduced our peat consumption at our store. There's also like cow pots that people will like make out of cow patties, like cow poop pots Mm -hmm. instead of the peat pots that you would grow for, for seeds or compressed newspapers. And then the last greener option out there is an electric mower instead of a gasoline one. If you do end up keeping part of that lawn, which there's lots of reasons to keep your lawns. It's just also they're the worst. (laughs) So Sarah, you got an electric mower, right? I did. Tell us about it. I, I give it two thumbs up. I mean, just, just from a user standpoint, I was really pleased with it. I've, I've used it a whopping two times now, but I will say I charged it once after I got it and I used it for like five minutes just to mow a a small strip of my yard out by the street. And then I did not have to use it again for weeks. I can't remember exactly how long, but it was several weeks. And the next time I went to use it, the battery was still charged and it lasted for my entire 30 minute mow and didn't seem to have any signs of slowing down. It's super easy to use. It's a lot quieter 
which is another side benefit to oh, gas nice. mowers. It's it's much nicer. You literally push a button to start it. So no more, you is know. Is there oil to put in it? I don't think so. If it's running, then no, there's no, no oil to put in it. Awesome. I don't, I think that, you know, there is very little maintenance is one of the things that you'll come across as a benefit for these as well. It's just sort of that day-to-day maintenance. And it's just so nice. I'm like, oh, I got to mow the lawn. At least I don't have to worry about going and getting gas in it for, <laughs> that for is... today. So yeah, I, I do sincerely, I, I really enjoy it. And, um, you know, aside, if you're like, oh, I want to do this for the environmental benefits, but I'm just not sure if it can handle what I've got. I, again, I've got a pretty easy lawn to mow, but it, you know, went around some stumps in my backyard. I, there was, my side yard was pretty overgrown already by the time I went out to use it and it went through it with absolutely no problem. So don't be afraid of it from a usability standpoint. You heard it here, folks. Testament to the electric. I mean, do your research. Obviously there's different ones that have different, you know, battery powers and all of that, but I've been very pleased. That's awesome. Uh, and this is not, so this is my kind of final point here, which is a personal opinion to cap off, I guess, a whole episode of just personal opinions. (laughs) A natural garden is not everyone's cup of tea. It can be divisive. (laughs) So like my mom grew up with the nicest lawn. My grandpa was like, had the perfect lawn and she is convinced that that is like peak Americana, like mm-hmm. shows that you've got it together. And she's actually very insecure about anytime her lawn doesn't look perfect. She's like, I'm going to, the neighbors are going to think that it, you know, I'm a terrible yeah. homeowner. And I remember my friends sold their house and the next person who bought it put right in the front yard, a native garden. And it was like, it even had a sign that said like, Oh, this is a meadow. And my mom and the former owners hated it. And part of that is because in the winter time, it looked like someone just decided to stop caring. Mm-hmm. When people put in native gardens, I think that a lot of people feel the opposite. They feel like I'm caring more than anybody else. <laughs> but if you live in an area that um, you might have people mad at you on, I also think that we don't necessarily do ourselves a service by telling everyone that they need something they consider ugly. (laughs) So if you are someone who feels really strongly about native plants and you feel strongly that everyone should have a native yard, I kind of agree with you, but it has to look good or you're never going to convince everybody. So some things that you can do, there's a lots of websites you can go on that will give you ideas of how to plan your native garden. So it looks attractive. Some of the things you can do is try and include structural elements to it. So it's not just about the plants. Your garden might have boulders in it or a bird bath or, uh, it, or like edging, like all the stones that you mm-hmm. put in the path there. All of those things are also part of your yard, also might help with your use. If you got a bird bath, make sure you clean it, but all also can be good for wildlife as well, but they end up providing these focal points that help the garden look like it's supposed to be there <laughs> instead of something that just happened to be there. If you do repetition and groupings of things, so if you group like members of the same species together and they all bloom at the same time, it looks like it's supposed to be there. It looks like there's intentionality to it and layering those different colors and bloom times and heights can help 
make it look like it's a professional garden. Because I think that's what a lot of people envision when they think of their beautiful native plant garden is these professionally manicured native plant gardens. You can do both. You can have both the native structure of your plant life there and attract all of these pollinators. They don't care what it looks like, (laughs) but your neighbors do. So if you can make it look professionally done and something that they want to, I think that's 10 times more convincing to most people than, but the bees will like it because not everybody likes bees. Mm -hmm. Not everybody's going to be convinced. Like my dad's always like, people are not convinced by the argument that my garden will have more bugs in it. That's not something that a lot of people are interested in. They don't see the inherent value as. So if you can say, Hey, it's good for the environment, but also it'll look awesome. Then that's going to hit both of those things for you and them and be way more convincing. So just a small example of that. We have a green group in town. They did a garden at a like senior center and it is all native plants. And during the summer, it looks beautiful. And during the rest of the year, it looks not so beautiful. And the residents want it replaced. Mm -hmm. So again, it has to be something people can live with and be happy about at the same time as it can serve its function. Yep. Absolutely. It's a good point. And and it can be done. You know, there's, there's Mm -hmm. great pictures that you can find online and it, and it doesn't have to be an all or nothing thing either. You know, that's where I think about, you know, well, I, I don't want to turn my yard into a meadow. I don't want to rip out all of my lawn, but swamps. What if I turn into a swamp? (laughs) What if I can pull out this little part and yeah, have a, have an edging around it and have a little mini, you know, like wildflower patch, you know, so think about, again, think about your goals and, you know, kind of find the middle ground there. Some of you, some folks will have to deal with HOAs as well. And your Mm -hmm. HOAs are going to say this, this isn't allowed. And, you know, so you might have to fight that battle too, but again, it doesn't have to be an all or nothing. So moral of the story here is don't just stop mowing your lawn and say that it's native. (laughs) That is the number one way I feel like everybody turns us off is to be like, (laughs) just those lazy hippies and their unmowed grass. That's why I always, even when I didn't mow my backyard or yeah, I didn't mow my backyard. I mowed my front yard. (laughs) That's I would always make Andrew do the same thing. And like, we didn't mow our grass partially because the tortoises could eat a bunch of the right. dandelions and stuff. And that was totally fine. So again, that was a purpose of our garden. One of my long-term garden goals is to never buy lettuce for tortoises ever again. Okay. I want to grow it, everything that they can have. So, um, so yeah, all of this and is you'll very be personal. able to soon. I'll be able to, I have a yard, uh, or I'm going to have a oh, knocking on all the wood. Yes. Um, but yeah, start small figure out what your goals are. It can happen over time. If you do it all in once, honestly, it might be too overwhelming for you. So start small experiment. It's so rewarding. You don't have to identify as a gardener to do it, but if you are into the environment, this is one of the ways that you can control your little patch. If you have a little patch, cause I was a renter for a very long time. So I totally understand that too. <laughs> Potted gardens. Yes. Think. Container gardens. Also, Anyway, that's, that's the word I was looking for. Container gardens, uh, <laughs> gardens, whatever. It's fine. Oh boy. Thank you. Casey. As always, I learned a lot. Appreciate the discussion. Stick around everybody. We'll be back with our challenge for the week. Welcome back.
the challenge portion of our episode. If you're not familiar with us every week, we issue you a challenge based on the topic at hand to help you incorporate action into your learning as well. And so I have a couple things for you this week. We try and give you a couple options because everybody lives different lives. Um, the first one would be go through this list. I just gave you a bunch of things that you can do. I'm hopefully going to have a home in a month or two (laughs) that I'm going to be able to hopefully make my plan for. And I've already decided I'm putting blueberries in the front yard. And I think it's fun. It's a nice dream experiment. It doesn't have to happen all at once. And then it, it can be a really fun way to envision a new space where you live. But the other two you can do is number one, look up your agricultural zone. You should just know what it is because it'll help you in some way, even if it's just answering a question when Casey asks it on a podcast, you remember the number nine. Proud of you, Sarah. Thanks. (laughs) But if you get a chance this week, visit your local independent garden center, even if it's just to enjoy smelling flowers, even if you're not buying anything and you just go there and you see what they have, you ask somebody a question about something, you can ask them if they've got native plants. And that is a really good way for them to know that there is some demand out there for native plants. Um, so that just find one that's local to you, go see what they've got, go enjoy the nature around you. That can be part of your outside time. Um, and hopefully it's warm enough to do it because right now it's 30 degrees outside. So, so go in their greenhouse. You'll be happy. (laughs) Anything to add Sarah? Nope. I, this one is going to be a challenge for me though, because obviously I already know my agricultural zone, Um, (laughs) but I have looked for independent garden centers or plant nurseries around here. And I'm struggling to find something that's close by me. That's still open. Although I will say I was prioritizing native. Gotcha. Yeah. That. So I may have to eliminate that from my search criteria and just, if which you, doesn't mean that they won't have names, yes, but I'm just, yeah, absolutely. You know, that and there like we've increased our native selection significantly over the last couple of years because of demand. I, it's still important to note that not the majority of our customers are looking for native mm-hmm. plants. That's not the majority of them, but people have asked and we have gotten more of them. So if you go there and you don't find all the things you're looking for, you can, you can ask. Yeah. And I, it's, I mean, clearly I have a ton to learn about plants still. So clearly me too. (laughs) Good for me to go. So no, thank you, Casey. I appreciate it again. Happy spring, everybody. Happy garden planning to all of you this week. If you have anything that you want to share with us, there are lots of places that you can find us. You can find us on Facebook, a little greener podcast. You can find us on Instagram at a little greener pod. You can find us on Twitter at a greener podcast, and you can send us an email at a little greener podcast at Gmail dot com send us pictures of your flowers or your garden yes please <laughs> please do They'll make especially for those of us that live in cold climates and want to see some the daffodils look so sad right now oh. guys they were like spring <laughs> too spring soon like, no too soon <laughs> be fine <laughs> but yeah they look sad today all right thanks for listening guys we will talk to you next week Bye. Bye.